Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. It's so nice to be here today on this wonderful Sabbath day, and I just hope that you guys are enjoying such a wonderful week of unleavened bread. And we are in the middle of the week. We actually passed the middle of the week. It's just a few more days left. So please use the times wisely, as Fred and Agent said. Read Philippians chapter 2 and try to meditate and eat upon these words. So the title of my message is The Perfect Sacrifice. And I don't know if you hear the words that this group was singing to us today, but very powerful words, words of light. Words of hope, give us strength, help us cope. Ancient words will guide us home. It's a very powerful song, and I want to thank you for the group that put time together to practice and just prepare for us. It was a wonderful, wonderful song. So I was talking about the master plan of God and its perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. And, you know, we are in the beginning of God, God's holy calendar. Springtime is the first month on God's holy calendar. It's the first God's feast, feast of Passover with unleavened bread. As we're moving along, Pastor Murray, during the Passover message, he brought at the beginning the scripture, which is in Revelation. You don't have to go there, but in Revelation 13, in verse 8, the second part of the verse, it says, Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And brethren, we worship an awesome God. You know, all these pages through this Bible, going from the beginning to the end, to the last book of Revelation, an apostle says, Apostle John says, all things was possible through the slain lamb from the foundation of the world. What he's trying to tell us is just go to the beginning. If you go to Genesis, God's plan started even before the book Genesis existed. Before God created everything, he already had a plan in mind what he's going to accomplish. He already had a plan for all of us, for you, for you, even for people who don't believe in this gospel right now. God has a plan for them in his kingdom too. But if we go to Genesis chapter 3, just the first thing when first people sinned, I think that's the first story of, recorded story of the first Passover in the Bible. Just, you know, just be with me. That's my opinion, okay? So it's chapter 3, and in verse 7, it says, when they sin, right after they sin, it says in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and look what they did. And they shook thick fig leaves to God together and made themselves a covering. As human beings, we are very good at it. When we sin, we try to cover our own sin through our own way. And we're very creative. You can look around, we have a bunch of religions around. A bunch of religions around. And you know, even people come to the conclusion right now, that even though we have so many religions, all say, you know what? All these religions, all of them point to the same God. We're good at it. We know how to cover our own shame. But God says, no, 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 no. In verse 21, he says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. 
God says, uh-uh, just to see, just to experience what it means to die. I believe that God killed the animal, and I strongly believe it was the lamb. We don't know from the Hebrew. But let's say it was the lamb. God skinned the animals, prepared a special tunic for them, and says, I will give you my own covering. I will have to perform everything that you, that you, that you, that you need. It is in my hands. Don't try to do your own way. That's a God's message. Brethren, if you move forward to Genesis chapter 15, let's study, if you can see, we can conclude at the end of the study, that's another passage of the Passover in the scripture so early, okay? And just to break into the context, is Genesis chapter 15. You know, Abraham was very old, and God promised him something. He says, I will give you descendants. He's about 90 years old. His wife, Sarah, she can't have any children. She's at this age that is physically speaking, it's impossible to have children, okay? So just breaking into the context here, let's say in verse 5. If I can myself just assume just for a moment, let's say that that will be the first, first month of God's Hebrew calendar, and that will be the 14th, the, way that, the day that we celebrate the Passover. Let's just assume. We'll look at the evidence a little bit later. So then he brought him outside and said, look, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Just the simple words, Abraham believed. We would, we would think that he would believe. But next verse says, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, now Abraham is speaking, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Just, how, how are you going to do this? Just show me, give me something here so I can understand. And look what God did. And God says in verse 9, he says, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all this to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and place each piece opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And verse 11, And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And just for your own reference, if somebody, if you make notes, you can know about this covenant a little bit more. It's Jeremiah chapter 30, I think it's 34 and verse 18. You can go there in this beautiful description about this covenant, what Abraham is doing. But in short, what God is telling that was a Middle Eastern custom. Let's say, you know, Let's say me and Tom, we agree on something. And we try to put a contract together, like a business contract. Tom would say, I will provide you through the year so many, let's say, tons of apples. And you will, let's say, you will pay me $100,000. We all both would agree. So he says, we need witnesses. And you know what? We'll cut, two, two, we'll cut animals, two pieces. We'll just put them on the ground, each piece separate. As we'll walk through these pieces, Tom will say, you see? If you don't perform what you promised me, you'll be just like one the piece of the animal right on the ground, and the blood spilled on the ground. If you don't perform, that's what God will do to you. And I'll say, okay, you have to remember, you have to remember your part, because if you don't perform what you promised me, the same thing happened to you. That's what happened. But what is interesting in this passage, verse 12, now, that's the, when the sun was going down, that's the next day, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, Horror and great darkness fell upon him. Horror and great darkness. 
Remember moment when Christ was crucified? What happened on the day when he died? Horror and great darkness fall upon the whole earth. So we have more evidence now that maybe this is about the Passover. But just wait. And then he said to Abram, he says, now we get into the history. He says, most certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. Ah, he was talking about the Egyptian bondage now. Abram doesn't have a clue yet. God is telling him his history in the future. And in verse 15 he says, Now as for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried at good old age. But in the 14th generation, they shall return here, for the inequity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And verse 17, look what happened. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. What happened? God says to Abraham, go to sleep. You can't perform your burden of the contract. I'm not going to hold you accountable. You can't even keep it. God himself went through the, all these animals to the pieces and says, I will even die myself just to keep this covenant. That's what God did. You see how amazing, brethren, it is? Look at the next verse, 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Move over to Exodus chapter 12. Move over, move over to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 41. 40. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 41. And it came to pass, actually 40. Now, the whole time the children of Israel who live in Egypt, it's specific now, was 430 years. Verse 41, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, and look at the next sentence. On the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Which land? Moses, which day Moses is referring to? On the same day that God made the covenant with Abraham 430 years before. Brethren, we worship an amazing God. Everything in this book, every single thing that is written here in this book, God is working accordingly what he wrote generations ago, thousands of years ago. If you have a choice, you can follow men, you know, who have their own writings, who are full of their own traditions, and you can follow that. You have a choice. Or you can follow this one single book and what God has to say for you and for your life. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. So we see, brethren, just... The Passover feast didn't start in Exodus. Okay? It didn't start in Leviticus chapter 23. God is pointing to this feast going back all the way to creation. And John is mentioning it even in the Revelation. So, before Passover, what I noticed being in God's church for, I don't remember how many years, but, you know, before the Passover service, some people got confused and said, I don't feel like I should participate today. I, I feel like I'm not worthy. On the other hand, we have people who will say, it's just a ritual. It's meaningless. As long as I have faith, 
Okay, as long as I have my Christ in my heart, that's all I need to do. But what I would say now, I would say, just go back to Egypt. Okay, just go back to Egypt. And put yourself in the shoes of Israelites on the Passover night. You hear all the commandments when Moses is trying, when Moses is teaching his people what they're supposed to do on this night. And let's say, you just say, like, you know what? I have this faith in my heart. I have strong faith in God. I know that what's God doing in my life. And I'm not going to sacrifice this animal. And I'm going to put its blood on the doorpost. And I'm not going to eat this lamb. And I'm going to stay inside the home. What would happen to you? You'll be dead. Simple. It doesn't matter. You could say, you know what? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. My genealogy goes back so many years. Will it happen? Let's turn the things around. Let's say you were Egyptians. It's experiencing all these plagues that were happening along the way, okay? You would, you would come to the conclusion that the God of this people is a really strong God. What if I listen this time and let's say I see what they're doing and maybe, you know what, I'll go and pay some people and say, what are you doing? And they will explain to me. I will go home. I will kill the lamb. And I will put the blood on the doorpost. What do you think what would happen to the Egyptians? Would God kill the firstborn? No. And you know how I know? We can go to this book. It says in, in verse 12, it says, in chapter 12, verse 38, it says, A mixed multitude went up. A mixed multitude. There were Egyptians. There may be some other people that are included. So you see, the best example of God's grace is right here at the first Passover in Egypt. That's how God operates. And you know, that's a perfect plan of God. That's a perfect plan of God. Now, for the perfect plan of God, for a master God, now we need a perfect sacrifice. That was not over. That was just pointing to something that's going to happen in the future on a greater scale. If you go to, you are in Exodus chapter 12, you go to verse 2. And let's see some of the instructions. So Moses is saying to them, in verse 3, he said, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, on the tenth of this month, every man, shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Not just any particular lamb. It had to be a special lamb. In verse 6 he says, Now we shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. It wasn't just any regular lamb. You had four days. So you pick a lamb of ten, okay? You get along with this lamb. You keep it at home probably because you were afraid so this lamb might get, you know, bruised or bleeding somewhere. That wouldn't be perfect, right? So you, help, you hold this lamb for four days. You get used to this lamb so much, you feed it by hand, you pet it. And four days later, what is God telling you? You have to kill this lamb and sacrifice. So the first thing will come to my mind right away. You know, if I lived at that time, we'll say like, but why this poor animal has to die for me? I'm guilty. So he was about to teach something. God's people were supposed to have a lesson that something's going to happen in the future on a greater scale, right? So we see how God was specific about this lamb. If you go to Leviticus chapter 22, Leviticus chapter 22, Verse 20 and 21. Leviticus 
Leviticus chapter 22, verse 2021, and just breaking into the context, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. For it shall, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the, from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. That's how God gives the instructions to his own people how they should give, how they should sacrifice, what kind of animals they should sacrifice. So now just let's just move over to the period when Jesus came along. Now it's the temple, so they don't have to do it at home. Now they have to travel to Jerusalem. And you know, the population of Jerusalem, people estimated with different numbers, but let's say just, they said, let's, let's just estimate like half a million people. During the Passover season, where all the families were, where all the families were commanded to come to celebrate, to celebrate this feast, the population of, of Jerusalem would double. Okay? That's how big holiday this was. So at this time, when you were a priest serving at the temple, you can imagine all these people traveling from distances and bringing all the lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. They brought them ahead of time so they, they can bring them to the priests. They will examine the lamb and proclaim in, let's say, that's a good lamb. They can keep it in sacrifice on the Passover. If they didn't like it, they will say, no, uh -uh, it's not going to go like that. It's not perfect. We're not accepted. So people came days ahead of time just to make sure that if I stand in line on this day, if I want to sacrifice my lamb, nobody's going to say to me, go home, we're not going to take it. Okay? Just think about it. If you have a temple authority, what an easy way to make money, right? It's just there and says, you know what, I don't like this lamb, I don't like this lamb, I don't like that one, this one either. What, what choice do you have? You have to go to them and buy from the temple authorities the lamb that they were breeding of their own. And the place where they were breeding their own lambs, you know what the place was? It was Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew calls house of prayer. You see how everything comes into pieces slowly? So this temple's authority, they were breeding all these lambs, and people eventually, they got the idea that it's better to buy from them, at least we're not going to know. They're going to take this lamb. Can you imagine what the price was for a Passover lamb? Before Passover? People have to pay double, triple, just to have a perfect land. Now also imagine the people who are coming all over the way from different parts of Roman Empire. And they had to convert the currency to a temple shackle, right? Right? It's a good way to make money. It's a good way to make business. Let's say Canadian dollar is, let's say, one to one, right? During the Passover feast, well, let's say all the Americans come to Canada. Hey, we can make some money, right? Triple for one. What about that? What choice do you have? You can't offer any other money in the temple. You gotta be, you have to be a temple shekel, right? You see? Easy way to make money. So you shouldn't be surprised that people kept all these animals. If they had any animals, they kept them with such a care. The children went sleeping on the street, but the lambs were sleeping in the home at this time. That's how it was. And I know it. I read some history. I did some research. So we have, a, we have, a, we have an idea. What happened during Jesus' time when Jesus was watching what was happening in the temples? Just before the Passover, right? You have, the, you have the feeling. But what I want you to keep this thing in your mind, and I want you to go to First King, because I want to show you something else. And I hate to break it into the context, but I will explain it soon what I mean. First, first Kings chapter 1. We'll talk about David. First Kings chapter 1. 
Let me give you a little background here for the story. David is dying. Okay? He's dying. He's on his bed. He's dying. And at this time, King David should announce who will replace him as a king. He didn't do it. And you know, King David was a wonderful man of God. He was a great king. But he was a terrible father. So now is the competition among his children. One of his son, Adonijah, he wants to take the strong by himself. So now is the climax. It's coming. So now we're going to pick up the story at verse 28. First King chapter 1 and verse 28. Then King David answered and said, Call Barsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king stood an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from, my, from, from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be the king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So certainly we do this this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her, with her face to the earth, and paid homage to the king, and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call me, call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, that the king also said to them, and listen to this because this verse is very important, okay? The king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, and he says, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. This is very important because people of Israel, they knew this story very well. I will show you why. Then, you know, verse 34, it says, there is out of the prison, eating the prophet, anoint him, anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn and say, long live King Solomon. And I think that should be enough. Now, why was this thing very important? Because the Middle Eastern tradition, when the king was riding on a horse, on a chariot, okay, everybody knew it, that king is going to a war. He was riding on a mule. Everybody knew it, that king is in a peaceful mind. No danger. Children ran to him, and he gave like a small presents to children, throwing money. Everybody was happy at the day. That's what, that's, that was, that they knew it. That was the tradition, not just Israel, but also, also other countries around them. But why is this important, brethren? Why is this important? We go to the New Testament, Mark chapter 11. Keep all this thing that we said. Keep all this thing in mind. Mark chapter 11. Verse 1. Mark 11, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem... To Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Look what Jesus is asking for. Because every single detail has got to be fulfilled, what God promised in his word. We don't have any time to go through all these prophecies, but just a few of them. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has set. Lose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, he found the colt tied by the door outside, outside on the street, and they lose it. But some of those who stood there said to him, Why are you doing this, losing the colt? And, and they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded. So, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And just, just for a moment, have you ever tried to ride on a horse that was never ridden before? Have you ever tried it? It's almost, you know, we have to break the animal first. So in this case, this animal was never used before. And you know, I can tell you one thing, that sometimes animals are more perceptive of the spiritual, spiritual, spiritual world than we are as human beings. This poor animal 
He knew exactly what his, what his purpose and was quiet and let Jesus sit on him, right? And he says, And they spread their clothes on the road, and others cut out the leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out. Now look what is happening here, okay? Look, you get the picture? You think where I'm going? The, what is what is he say? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's the day, you know, AD 10. Just the day before they were selecting the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ showed up in the temple, riding on, a, riding on this animal, and says, Hey, I'm the king, king of peace, and I'm coming to your city. And people accepted him. But you know what was the difference? Because people accepted him, they didn't even realize that he, Jesus Christ, will be their Passover lamb. Because he changed this day, he changed the, all the leaders, changed their hearts. Because they knew what was happening. People proclaimed him king in Jerusalem. Right before Passover, and there were thousands of thousands of people. You know where I'm going? You know what I'm saying? Now, let's go to Zechariah chapter 9. Hold your place in Mark. Hold your place in Mark. All the people knew this prophecy very well. They understood what was happening there. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. In verse 9. Look what in Zechariah he says. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. See the message? They were waiting for Messiah. They were dying for Messiah. They knew all the scriptures that were pertaining to Messiah. Now they put these pieces together. They kind of, you know, I think they, they kind of like see it. They understand the prophecy that Zechariah wrote it 500 years before Christ. And they see it coming, you know, it's just in front of their eyes. They're all excited about it. But, Jesus came this day. He came into the city in peace. And as we, can, as we can read in Mark chapter 11, if you go to back to Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, And Jesus went to Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went, out of, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he came, king of peace. He was watching what was happening in the temple. And he was not very happy. He was not very excited what was happening there. Was not, that was then one, day one. Let's move to the next day. Let's move to the next day. Everything is going according to God's plan. Almost everything is going according to God's plan. There's one more missing element. Go back to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, in verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom I seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the message of the covenant in whom you are delighted. Okay? Another prophecy about the Messiah. Go back to Mark. Go back to Mark. In verse 15. So that's the next day. Mark 11 verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. The Jesus went into the temple and began to drive off those who bought and sold in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold dogs. And he would not allow anyone to carry words throughout the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer 
for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see how important it is, how everything's falling into the pieces? What is, church, what is Jesus Christ is doing here? He's, by the general population, population, he's proclaimed as king. All this authority, political and religious authority, in, his, in, in, in Israel at the time, right, in Judah at the time, they know what's going to happen to them. The climax is coming. Jesus is cleaning the temple. They can't do anything because they are afraid of Jesus. So in verse 18, and the scribe and chief priest heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they fear him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So when the eating had come, they went out of the city. That's the second day. See how everything is fulfilled that we read in the book of Exodus. How about, you know, the four days, about the animal? Examine the animal, make sure that it's without blemish, without spot, not just externally, but also eternally. So, brethren, just go to John. They will see, I want to show you what was going on in the heads of the, of the priests, of the Sadducees and Pharisees at this time, of the temple authorities. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. In verse 47. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If you let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both. Look what they mentioned first. What they will take away from us. They will take away both our place and our nation. That is their problem. They're worrying about their own place in these nations, because Judah at that time was under the Roman occupation. That is their major threat. They just worry, I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my position if Jesus is going to become a king. So, and one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Do you, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What a prophetic word. And you see, the point is, they absolutely never have any clue what they were doing, that whatever they were doing was doing according to the God, God's plan that we preordained a long time ago. Sometimes in our life we struggle, we don't know. Many times you know, like, if that's really supposed to happen, that's supposed to the way to, to be what is God. And God is performing something that we might not even be aware of what God is doing in our lives, or in our neighbor's life, or in our nation's life. So in verse 51, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And verse 53, Then, from that day on, they plotted, to, they plotted to put him to death. That's their plan. They had a council. They agreed. Jesus Christ, as a man, cannot exist anymore. Few more days, few more months. That's it. We lose our power. We lose our authority. We have to get rid of him. That's the two days. Now it comes the third days, just before Passover. And they have a wonderful plan, brethren. They have a wonderful plan. Now it comes the examinations of the land. Not external examination. Internal examination. If you go to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. 
And you know, on your own time, I don't have time to go through all these details, but you can read Luke chapter 20 and verse 9, when he gives the power, power for a parable. Uh, we accuse the leaders of whatever happened there. And then how, how, how the, in verse 19, he says that the chief priests and the scribes, the very hour, sought how to lay hands on him, but they were feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They were fully aware of what was happening. But they have this brilliant plan. And you know, Pharisees will have their first turn. And what's the, what would be the better way to put Jesus, to, to eliminate Jesus? What would be the better way to show Jesus in conflict with the Roman authority? That would be easy. We don't have to make our hands dirty. We just try to put him in conflict with the Roman's authority. That will take care of Jesus for us. So the Pharisees have a brilliant question, okay? The Pharisees have a brilliant question here. And it's about taxes. So if you go to verse 20. Look how we watch the whole story. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent spices who pretended to be righteous, okay, that they may seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the government. In verse 21, and then they asked him, saying, Teacher, oh, we know you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. What a hypocrite, right? Well, look at the question. They think they have a brilliant question, okay? And I want you to put yourself in this situation. Thousands of people trying to gather and hear Jesus, what Jesus is going to say, right? You know, what's the option? If Jesus is going to say, you're not allowed to pay taxes to Caesar, right? Guess what? All the people go, yes! You know, that's our Messiah. Another revolt. This Roman soldier will just step in right away. If Jesus says in front of these people, no people, you have to pay taxes. Jesus is losing his credibility as a king, as a Messiah. You see? So, they ask him this question. Is it lawful for us, verse 22, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You know, sometimes we to the scripture, just keep it over, it says like, you know, but just think about it. It's a brilliant question. It took them hours to come with a question like that to show Jesus, okay? And Jesus, the way he answers is, it's just brilliant. Everybody's silent. Nobody can go out. How are we going to counteract this? It's good. So, you know, in verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marvel at his answer and kept silent. So Pharisees are done. His political views, they can't catch him on anything. Now, Sadducees are probably laughing there, right? Because, you know, at this moment, Sadducees and Pharisees, they could never agree on anything. They only agree on one thing. We need to eliminate Jesus. And they both came together, okay? Because their religious views are different, totally different. So now, Sadducees are probably were laughing and saying, like, Pharisees, like, ha, 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 ha. You think you're so smart. Now it's our, now it, now it's our turn. So, in verse 27. The some of the Sadducees who denied that there is resurrection came to him and asked him. Just by the way, a little background about the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrections. They didn't believe the whole Bible. The only Bible they believed was only the first five books of Moses. So if you don't believe in resurrections, you don't believe that there is something after this physical life, then you know what? You try to grab as much as you can while you live. So they don't care if they you know, cooperate with Romans or whoever it is. 
as long as they can keep the power, as long as they can keep the money coming into their pockets, they absolutely don't care. That was their perception for life. You know, let's live today because tomorrow we don't know what's going to happen. That was the motto for their life. They tried just to get rich and have a wonderful, beautiful life. So they came up with another brilliant question, okay? A hypothetical question. And they say, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's everything according to the law of God. That's how God prescribed. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And then second took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. And now, in verse 33, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she belong? Followed seven had her as wife. It's a valid question. Everybody would ask this question, right? That would ask probably the same question, okay? Okay, the resurrection will come up. There were seven of us. There's only one wife. What are we going to do now? Is God going to cut this one woman in seven pieces and just distribute to each, you know, each single man? How, how are we going to do it? That's why they were laughing at the Pharisees. They say, you know what? Resurrection is impossible. Resurrection is impossible. They were even asking, you know, questions like that Pharisees, you know, they were giving, when they were arguing among each other, they say, you know what? If there is a man, and let's say this man doesn't have an arm, how he's going to be looking in the resurrection, he comes as a resurrection? They were laughing at it. They didn't believe it. Look at Jesus' brilliant answer, okay? This is, it's amazing. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given to marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Explanation simple. I have children. If I die, somebody has to replace me. That's why I have to have this marriage. That's why I have to make children. They will have to have their own children. Just to keep growing. Just to keep life alive. But if I'm a resurrected person, I'll live forever. I don't need to have children. I'll be just like angels there. It's just so simple. But it's just good and get it. But it's not over. Now Jesus is going to, not just Jesus is going to, uh, in a way, he's going to now respond to the beliefs of Sadducees. Okay? But he, and they say in 37, verse 37, look how brilliant is this. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the, race, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, when he called the Lord, the God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all left to him. Just think about it. Oh, they believe only five first books of Moses, and they said there is nothing about resurrection in these five books. Jesus is saying, when you pray every day, you pray to your God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the same God that told, told Moses, he says, I am God. He didn't say, I was God of Abraham. I was God of Jacob. I was God of, you know, of all the other people. He says, I am God of Abraham. I am God of Jacob. I am God of Isaac. You see what he's saying? Because God, even though we die, God still remembers every single one of us. It says, for God, just like everybody else, there's no difference. You see how amazing it is? See how amazing it is? And, and you know... Jesus put another, now this time, theological arguments or whatever, examinations. They were trying to examine his religious view. He answered them, he answered them you know, perfectly. Look verse 39. 
Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken so well. But after that, they dare not ask him anymore. So we have people, they accept him as a king. Pharisees, they could find anything wrong in Jesus. Sadducees, they say, hey, what it was that? You see how Jesus got to be the perfect, perfect sacrifice? For God, perfect master plan. There has to be a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is fulfilling every little detail. But it's not over. It's not over. If I were Jesus at the time, after all this argument, I would just stand like, wow. Oh, I would be so happy. I would be just, wow, all these people are silent. But you can read on your own. Jesus is going to the offensive. He is going to the offensive now. And look what he's asking, what kind of question he's asking them. He is showing them, and he is proving them without any doubt, I am the Messiah, whether you like it or not. And you're going to know what you're going to do. But you know, what? whatever you're going to do, it will be wrong. And you're going to know this in your hearts. That's what he's telling them in the next verses, brother. So this passage, when you read, when you put all these pieces together throughout the Bible, how God fulfilled everything from the Passover, from the Genesis, to Genesis 15, to the Exodus story, to Jesus Christ. As I ask you a question, which book would you believe? All these traditions that, you know, flooring all over the place, or you will believe this one single book that is written by so many people in so many different time zones and so many different you know, individual and personality, and it's so true and so applicable to us today. So, brethren, but it's not over, okay? It's not over yet. I want to show you something in other is so powerful. Luke 23. Let's move over to Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 1. Look at this thing. Now is the, the crucifixion day, okay? Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, and listen, we went through all the scriptures, right? Now look, look what they accused him. They said, oh, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ and king. Did he really say that? No. Then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief prison crowd, look what he says. I found no fault in this man. It's not just the Jewish nation. It's not just the religious leader, Pharisees, Sadducees, and everybody. Pilate himself, as a rep- rep- representative of the Roman Empire, he says, I have found no fault in this man. It's not over. Keep reading. But they were... Verse 5. But they were, but they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And now when Pilate heard of Galilee, he, he asked if the men were Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also, a, who was also at Jerusalem at the time. And now Herod saw Jesus, he was very exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see, to see some miracles, miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him with a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. The very day Pilate and Herod became friends. In verse 13, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and rulers and the people, he said to them, Look at this. You have brought this man to me as one who, who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man, 
concerning those things of which you have accused him. Verse 15. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you, so for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of that has been done by him. Along the way, you see how everybody had to examine Jesus. And, and they had to proclaim him as a perfect, only sacrifice. Going from one authority to the other authority to the other authority. But brethren, it's not over. It's not over yet. Matthew chapter 27. Look at this. We all know who betrayed Jesus, right? We all know who betrayed Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer. Matthew 27, verse 3. Seeing that he, seeing that he, that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is to us? See to it. Even Judas said, he's innocent. What well, they did, it was wrong, and he tried to repent. He said, it was innocent. So, brethren, in closing, and it's very, it's so very interesting, and you know, on one hand it's funny, but it's not funny, but, you know, see, let me follow. Just people, people, they examine Jesus, they love him, they proclaim him king, right? Now, the Pharisees tried to condemn Jesus, they couldn't find any fault in him. So with Sadducees' term, they couldn't find anything wrong in him, so they said, he's blameless. So they, you know, they, they, sent him to, they sent him to Pilate. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong, so he sent him to Herod. Herod couldn't find anything wrong, he sent him back to Pilate. Pilate, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Nothing, there's nothing I can do, he's in his innocence. But you look in Matthew, if you remember Matthew 27, just look verse 25. In, in verse 25 it says, all the people, all the people in Judea at the time, it says, what are prophetic words? What are prophetic words? And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. You see, they didn't even realize that they need his blood. They thought they were getting rid of him. But they actually need his blood. They need his blood not just on them, but they also need the blood for their children and their grandchildren and grandchildren. Everybody needs Jesus Christ's blood. So, brethren, my closing scripture for today, if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, keep all this thing in mind that we just read along the way, through all these different scriptures, gospel and, you know, an Old Testament and book of Genesis. Just keep everything in mind. Go to 1 Peter. You want to have this mind that was in Paul, my brother Adrian was talking. Or you want to have the selfish mind. Look what Peter has to say about the same thing. Look what Peter says here. In verse 13, he says, he says to the brethren, Therefore, purge up your lines of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, in all your behavior, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained 
before the foundations of the world, but was manifested in this last time for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Can you really understand this scriptures, what Peter is trying to tell us? Brethren, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was a perfect in every single way. He was sinless. He was righteous. He was holy from any side, inside out. Whatever how we look at it. God's master plan required a perfect sacrifice. And brethren, the good news is that God's master plan doesn't stop at Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God's holy plan stops at the Feast of Tabernacle when one day we're all going to be in his kingdom. So praise the Lord, brethren, and thank you, because we, we worship an awesome God. This podcast was brought to you by the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more, visit us on the web at cgiburlington.org.